dear friends. Welcome to another episode of the 10 Laws Podcast with East Forest. I'm East Forest, and today I have a return guest, Mr. Cody Wiggs. Cody's someone who was uh, back on an earlier episode, and we had reconnected because Rod and I were out there in Denver, which is where he's located, and it sort of just popped into my head that uh, he had offered to help facilitate uh, an experience. He does a lot of work with ketamine therapy. And, well, you know me, I'm interested in this stuff. And so I reached out and he was kind enough to, to slot us in. And it was it was really, really an amazing experience. And so we get into the details of what that experience was like. But it's, it's something that... Uh, really got me interested more in this particular compound as a medicine and how it can be used therapeutically and particularly how it was interacting with, uh, we used uh, the Spores album, which is a future East Forest record that is excerpts from the Music for Mushrooms, a soundtrack for the Psychedelic Practitioner album. So it's basically a shorter version of the Music for Mushrooms album. And it worked just wonderfully with that. And I'm always, of course, pretty excited to interface with my music in that uh, space because that's how all this started for me uh, 10, 11 years ago when I first made the education for the individual soul, you know, my very first record. And I was dropping into that space uh, to use it as a tool with psilocybin. That's that honestly what kickstarted this entire thing. So at the end of the day, uh, that's sort of like the core base used for me is using this music for a tool. And this was just a new tool. So I was just really excited to have that. We'll get into that. Um, back here on my end, I'm getting ready to go to the Science and Non-Duality Conference this weekend. If you're listening to this in a timely fashion, going to be pretty psyched. I'm doing a East Forest Ceremony concert on Friday night there at the conference in San Jose. So if you're there, please say hi. And if you're thinking of coming, they might have some tickets. It's a pretty large-scale event. And after that, uh, we're really working hard to get our visa stuff together for China because we're supposed to take off for that on November 12th, I believe. And we're still getting some... Who knew that there were? it was kind of challenging and complicated to get a visa to China? But we're making it happen. Uh, so I got some stuff to do on that today. And otherwise... Uh, I might have mentioned on earlier podcasts that I've been working on a uh, music studio space here in Boise at Rada's home. She had an exterior garage that I've been converting into uh, a mixing space and a music space. And so basically some soundproofing and insulation, electrical, all that kind of stuff, building windows. And we ran into to some issues with the, the city of Boise, like a neighbor complained. So they shut us down. They came over. We got a stop work order. So for months now, it's been just in stasis as we've been working backwards with the city to try to come into compliance. And the huge great news is that um, the inspector, Tony, came over on Monday and he was cool. I mean, it was like the best case situation. And so essentially we got the green light. I'm moving ahead. Everything's cool. And I'm just, I'm kind of in denial that this is actually now going to get finished. So I've been out there working and it feels good, man. It feels good to like, get my hands dirty and get back in the game of cutting wood and measuring stuff. And um, it's always been an aspect that I find really balancing 
and something and I typically like really look forward to when I wake up. I'm like, oh, I got to go out there and build. And it often feels like the perfect yin to the yang, or is it the yang to the yin? I don't know, to music making, which feels very uh, right brain. And going out there and building is obviously very left brain, but it does involve uh, right brain activities too of creativity and problem solving. So maybe, you know, in some ways it's a, it's a form of creativity, uh, construction and carpentry. And it's, it's so rich. And because you're using your body as well, it's sort of like body, mind, full body experience of working. So it has similarities to music in that sense. And I've been out there and I'm, I'd love to get it done by Thanksgiving, but there's a lot of, you know, China and touring and things going on. We'll see, but I'll, I'll keep cracking away. And I need to do that because uh, while I'm up here this winter based out of Boise, I need to make music. I need to keep um, doing what I do, mostly so I can stay happy, but also just to make a living and start working on the next stuff, the next projects. So, hey, did you enjoy the Christopher Willits remix or rework that came out? And we've got the next one coming out, which is Laraji, as I might have mentioned Last week, if you don't know Laraji, he's an ambient legend. Yeah, I think the story goes that he was dis- discovered in Washington Square Park in New York City by Brian Eno uh, quite a while ago, and that brought him into prominence. And since then, he's just a super wild dude. I'm gonna try and get him on the podcast if I can, but he's a tough one to nail down. <laughs> but we did talk a little bit, and I helped him out with this rework. I mixed it for him. And we got it mastered, and it is in the queue. So November first, All Saints Day perfect because he did a rework of the track like taking off an old shoe aka death the laraji rework so i think you're really going to enjoy that and then we have uh several more in the queue several amazing artists out there right now working on reworks that i'll tell you about as they start to unfold and that'll go pretty much till the end of the year to culminate and wrap up the ramdas project with these other additional voices All right, so let's get into this conversation with Cody Wiggs. We take things even deeper and just sort of catch up on on where our thoughts have been on this process. And I'll tell you all about my experience in the ketamine world. Here it is, Cody Wiggs. Cody, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me back. Excited to reconnect with you. Yeah, you reached out. I mean, we ran into each other recently because you reached out in Denver. But before that, you were kind of saying that since we last talked, like your work has evolved and there's more things to share. And then we bumped into each other when I was in Denver with Rada for the uh, Jonesy and Alex concert. And you were kind enough to link up the next day which was just perfect man and <laughs> awesome i got to have a wonderful experience with you at least you doing the guiding for ketamine and um it was really positive and powerful for me so thank you you're welcome and i'm excited to hear how that's been unfolding for you and and drop in a little further on what your experience of the ketamine space was it's a it's a space i've had a lot of difficulty lately actually articulating 
um, because it it does move so far beyond language. I find often, and and so I'm always keen to hear what other people are are finding in that space. Yeah, well, you're right. It is hard to describe, but I was talking about this with Rada yesterday, and we were doing just that, like trying to describe it. And I, what I was surprised by is how it sort of took me to this non-dualistic. Uh, what we like to call the cosmic center type place, mm-hmm. which is a very hyper spiritualized place for myself. I, I would imagine for anybody. Right. Uh, that was surprising to me. Um, I like I've read about uh, ketamine, and you and I spoke about together last time, just about like its effects with depression mm-hmm. and sort of like that clinical standpoint, which I knew about. But I wasn't sure, like, if that was purely a chemical reaction, and maybe that may be a large part of it. But I was, through my own experience, I realized, like, oh, there's a there's a deep spiritual part of this that probably has a lot to do with, um, you know, the alleviation of that depression, which is awesome because really that's in a lot of ways the root of a lot of depression. You know, sort of like a depressed spirit. Yeah, or and, a sense of separation and longing and. Uh, mm-hmm. not having a sense of home, really. Right. So I just, I mean, I remember there was a moment in it uh, where I always had a sense of of me. And uh, there were times where it was sort of, you know, I was totally open to wherever it wanted to go. And I was totally willing to like al- try to allow it to go as deep as it could and to really like let go into whatever space was unfolding. And so there were, there were absolute moments where I was, I felt like I was transcending a sense of self. Uh, but I, I remember having a thought as like, is this one of the best like psychedelic experiences I've had? <laughs> I was like, that's so crazy. I did not wake up today thinking it would be like this. I thought yeah. it would just be nice and they would feel good afterwards. And we'd work through some, some ritual and ceremony together. But there were, there were moments where, I mean, I, I can remember them now, like sort of the lessons I was learning and the, the feeling I was feeling and sort of the visual landscape I was in and how that was interacting with the music in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have I, two kind of questions coming up for me. The first would be, you know, the music being obviously part of this, but I'm curious how you felt, and this is kind of selfish, really, just so I can further my own understanding of my work, Um you know, what was the interaction between the space itself and experience? And so, you know, all elements of the space, including obviously me being in the room, um, Rada being yeah. in the room, um, you know, the the symbols, the ritual, the sound, um, and how that, you know, might have been different from, let's say, like, if you took this on your own uh, without that relationship piece. Well, I remember thinking in it, and I think I mentioned this a little bit to you afterwards, that... Like the set and the setting, you know, the set we're in and the mindset we're in is very important as this has been known for a long time. But I was really recognizing that the person, in this case you, who is holding that space, guiding that space, leading that space and setting the tone is maybe the top of the pyramid of what's important. Because the rest of the stuff, like the the medicine itself or the intention you have or even the mindset you're in, can't really work if you're inside a container that isn't jiving for you or in some ways it's going to steer it it's going to steer it in a direction right and so you kind of steered it and it was it was grounded it was very relaxed and your demeanor is very grounded and calm 
And then we worked through a bit of um, like a medicine wheel and talked about intentions. And so all this stuff creates that ritual and con- container and stuff that, you know, I, I talk about a lot about how this sort of primes the brain and the heart. And, th- and that, I think, did help the experience. And in addition to the fact that, you know, the music was a pretty good sound quality. And you know, I'm biased. We were listening to East Forest. <laughs> and <laughs> and I was really comfortable. And I was really remarking to myself, like, which that actually allowed me as I was lying down on the couch to really fully lose myself in my body. And I had moments where I was able to release to a degree where I wasn't quite sure where my body was in space, which is wonderful, right? Yeah. Like if I was if I was in a space where it's cold or I couldn't get comfortable, I wouldn't even be able to get past that threshold. Mm-hmm. So doing that and then being knowing that you were there, so I didn't really have to worry about time or the music or anything. I'm like, well, if he feels like something needs to be spoken to, he will. And if he's not, then I know things are good. And that allows me to just relax even more having like that sitter role and someone who's experienced with it to know, you know, what to say when, when it's over, how to come in and out of this. Cause I didn't know, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I'm just in it and I'm like, I don't know. Is I'm at this maybe is a peak. I don't know. And I'm just going to, I could just ride it though. And just roll with it. So it felt, it felt good. It felt yeah. Really good. Yeah. And what's been interesting to me about, you know, both your experience and a lot of what I've been seeing in session lately is there is, um, quite a bit of space in session where at least verbally we're not interacting, right? Like you're, you're pretty much in your experience and I'm literally just sitting. And as a a therapist, you know, people are coming to me and paying me money to help them. Um, it's something honestly I've struggled with sometimes of like, well, what, what is the significance or the importance of actually just sitting (laughs) and just holding space, whatever that means. Um, but in my own journeys recently, you know, in the last couple of months, I've definitely, you know, even been in a situation where all, all these people were having these big experiences and, and it would be easy to get caught up in, um, you know, sort of a spiritual materialism comparison game of like, well, what's my experience going to be like? Um, and when the time came for me, nothing really happened at all, um, even though I'd taken a pretty powerful medicine. And, and yet there was so much beauty in that experience because I was surrounded by six people um, all just silently sitting and, and being witness to my process and, and my experience and really attuned in a way that, that was actually quite present, uh, even though there wasn't an exchange of words. So that, um, mm-hmm. it's just a dynamic I've been really curious about of, of what we can offer one another just through presence. Uh, and well, I think the is. role of the sitter is not something that's really valued or taken into consideration for as powerful as, as for what it is. And and I think that's what we're, what we were talking about before about, you know, what was my experience with you? And I'm just using that word sitter, guide, facilitator, whatever you want. It's really, really powerful. Hmm. And I've said over and over again that, you know, someone's, your attention is your currency. And like, that's a huge gift you give. And it's also something that's commodified in this world. Mm -hmm. But they know that because it truly is like one of the most powerful gifts you have. And so just, you say like just sitting there and being present, it's like, that is the ultimate, Mm -hmm. really. And there's the old Terrence McKenna line about, he's like, all you need is like 
a person in the next room and maybe I like, and they just pop their head in every now and then and they're like, you cool? <laughs> you doing all <laughs> or, right? And I, or like I ring a little bell if I need them. But basically, you know, I've always told people like do the least amount you need to do. Yep. Non-intensive. But yeah, that decision about whether or not to, to act is very powerful. It's, it's not a simple like, oh, I mean, because it's so easy to do too much. And it's so easy to steer someone with with your own bullshit that you're bringing into the mm-hmm. picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so easy to kind of color in a in a, a not very powerful way, and to try to like get the person through something that maybe is uncomfortable for you to witness. That now you're actually not allowing them; you're stunting their own growth through the process. Right, and you know the the sort of flip side of that is that there are moments of intervening. Certainly, in a lot of my sessions, are, are highly interactive. Kind of the opposite of the experience you had, where you know, we're engaging and talking the whole time. And, um, you know, maybe this has come up for you, but what I've been playing with is, is speaking more from my body directly and from my, my experience of, uh, you know, people use the the language like somatic hit. Um, Mm. so that I'm almost in a bit of a meditative state as I'm there holding space and that, you know, in my mind or the mind or just has all these ideas, right? And is constantly mm-hmm. wanting to check in or make sure, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's a there's quite a bit of checking myself of like, yeah, now's not the time. Uh, but every now and then something will come up in my body that's like a distinct sensation. And often that will then just be coming out as words. Uh, and it's just the words that maybe need to be spoken in that moment or that take the process a little bit deeper. And, you know, we could speculate all day on, on what that actually is. I I think there is some some kind of co-resonance in the space of, of being with another person's body in the same room. Uh, and as, as you said, giving that currency of attention, um, you know, where sometimes the stuff that comes through and, and comes out of that process is, is surprising to both people. Um, sure, I would imagine. I mean, I, how, how do you find that you're able to trust your own intuitive sense or experience to know, like, if it goes from not saying anything yeah. to uh, helping them somatically with, like, pressure on their body or, like, this is going to be a – we're going to talk through something? Yeah, I just actually was talking with somebody else this morning who does this work, and, and we both kind of agreed that they're – luckily for us as facilitators, there's a lot of forgiveness in the medicine space. Um, you know, so whether we're talking about <laughs> yeah, <there is. laughs> MDMA or ketamine, like I've had plenty of times as a facilitator, we'll all voice something I think is, is what needs to be spoken. And, you know, the person having the experience is like, yeah, no, <laughs> no, that's not accurate at all. And they just continue with their experience. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, it's my willingness more than anything else to let go of my attachment to, um, you know, being at the center of the process or being right or saying the right thing. And, and and get it wrong sometimes, um, but then more and more through that trial and error process, I think that's where I'm finding the trust in my own intuition is that, you know, when I do take the risk and say something uh, and it does deepen their experience and it does hit for them and, and lands and takes them further, um, it's just a learning experience over time of, of having done a lot of these sessions where I find... M- Again, coming back to the body, um, you know, which sensations are true and, and which ones are are more in my mind just creating stories. Do you, do you think that like if all drugs were legal, 
would ketamine still be the one that you would work with in this fashion? Do you think it would still be the most powerful for sort of like, you know, not too long, not too short for psycho spiritual and emotional well-being? It's certainly one that would be at the top of my toolbox. Um, and I, I think I would have kind of a tiered approach and, and access to to multiple medicines if, if everything were on the table and legal. Uh, but ketamine is really distinct and unique as for the qualities you just mentioned that, you know, you can be really in and out in less than two hours. Uh, it, it's generally incredibly safe and warm and comfortable. And it, it lends well to the therapeutic space for that reason that you can have a process very quickly, um, enter the space, come back down, and then have some integration support and, you know, do a few sessions in the series of, of two to four weeks, uh, which is a pretty deep dive and and not nearly as hard on the body as, as like a six or seven hour like MDMA session. Um, right. Psilocybin session. Well, I, f- I find that with MDMA people, a lot of people report that there's a sense of depletion. Mm-hmm. Although they might have had, you know, some healing, there's also this sort of this mental and physical depletion afterwards. And that's sort of the common blues that can happen afterwards. As there, some folks can be quite profound and that they actually avoid the highs because of the lows. And that was something I really wanted to watch in myself after this, uh, the ketamine experience. You know, I, I just wanted to see how I felt. I have not felt like elated, but I also, mm-hmm. I haven't felt down. I mean, I, I just kind of feel like good. I just, yeah. just, but I felt, I did feel good walking in, but I did not feel depleted at all. Right. I didn't feel physically depleted. I didn't feel emotionally depleted. If anything, I felt emotionally inspired mm-hmm. because I was able to tap into a space that uh, feels like a source. You know, like, oh, right. There's a remembering to that. And that's comforting. I think that's probably the same thing that they're seeing in the results with like psilocybin and end of life care. Mm-hmm. You know, this probably has something to do with like connection to all that is. So you're a little less afraid of losing what you have in your body and life. Yeah. And I, you know, who really knows, right? It, it is kind of mind blowing to me that this experience that's so out of body and so far removed from, you know, sense of self and identity and ego and, and everyday reality actually kind of brings you deeper into reality when you come back is like right. <laughs> what I hear you saying is kind of commonly reported that, you know, we're not really aiming for elation. It's not as if we're, you're going to walk out and be like, ah, everything's amazing, but that there's a, there's kind of a, a deeper relaxation into just what is and be a yes. willingness to just like, yeah, ride the waves of life. Why, why do you think this is more of vogue lately? Uh, it's been around and how come it didn't uh, capture the psychedelic parlance in the past as something of use? Like the medicine itself hasn't changed and the container we're putting it in, I suppose, is more intentional, but it's not like mm-hmm. it's radical. It's a good question. I, my only response really is stigma that I, I find even amongst the psychedelic crowd or, or plant medicine crowd or whoever that uh, the ketamine, you know, people hear the word ketamine and often the visceral response is like, oh, I did that at a party and I'll never do it again. Mm. Um, or isn't that like a horse tranquilizer? Or there's there's just kind of like a, a, quite a bit of misunderstanding of what ketamine actually is and, and how it can be used in a therapeutic space. Um, I think people just see it as a club drug, uh, you know, which is kind of the same stigma that MDMA carry, but for whatever reason, um, because 
And also because ketamine is really not a classic psychedelic. It's No, but it, that's what screwed with me in my head because I knew that going in, but then I was having these experiences that were not visually psychedelic, but emotionally they absolutely were mm-hmm. in, from my, by my definition. And that's what surprised me because I had some of those predilections about ketamine in the past. I kind of thought like, yeah, you know, I hear I've read about this and that, but I've always just heard about K-holes and I thought about it in the same league as cocaine or anything else. It's sort of a thing people did at parties. Um, And then I heard the research and I still thought, well, it's not like this plant that grows out of the ground. It's not a fungus. It just pops up from the earth. It's this drug that we've created. Uh, So most of those sorts of drugs, whether it's MDMA or others, they 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 don't do so well in your body. No, you know, as we, and so that's why I'm 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 still skeptical, <laughs> even yeah. though I experience well, this because like if it sounds a little too good to be true. Yeah, and it it kind of feels that way in terms of of my work is um, I, the transformations I'm seeing in clients, and I'm not I don't feel like I'm exaggerating this in any way are nothing short of remarkable that people who are coming in with lifelong depression and over the series of, you know, let's say four sessions uh, in two months or less are walking out like, yeah, I'm, I'm better. I'm, I'm different and I'm changed and I'm not going back to that old place of depression. And honestly, I can't even really take credit for that because I don't un- fully understand what's happening in the ketamine space. But I'm, I'm certainly just grateful that this exists and um, and that it, from everything I can tell, all the research, all the experience I've had now, it has very little load on the body, very little negative impact. And if anything, you leave feeling better um, and more uh, relaxed and more safe and, and more spacious. So, uh, and even further, you know, it, it has, it increases neuroplasticity in the brain. So you can actually learn more effectively post-ketamine. Um, which is very different than MDMA or even, you know, any of the other psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin. Well, what is the frequency, though, where things could get ugly? I mean, there has to be. Because I, I also, when it came on at first, um, I was thinking, uh, oh, there's a familiarity to this and when I've had anesthesia. Like mm-hmm. when you go to the hospital and talk about the good stuff. It's like right. that wave of a body buzz and everything feeling okay and your anxiety goes away. There was definitely a bit of that. There was that color. And I thought, oh, okay, this is, it's that kind of world, which is quite pleasing. And mm-hmm. I could see how some people could abuse that. Um, I don't know what the addictive qualities are of ketamine, nor do I know... Um, even the, the you know the real toxicity of it we talked about this a little bit anecdotally but yeah, the, uh, these are interesting things to know i mean the safety profile is incredibly high in terms of um not affecting the body in any sort of deleterious ways uh, at at the doses we're using in therapeutic sessions right but that there are certainly uh and even the addiction profile you know is very low that um biochemically it's not a highly addictive substance there's a kind of the classic case study in the field is John Lilly. I don't know if you've heard of him, the guy who was... Yeah, the float tank yeah. guy. Yeah, and, you know, apparently... Did he talk to dolphins or... Something. Yeah. <laughs> he talked to all <laughs> kinds of... Yeah, he's got a whole book about dolphins. dolphin communication. Yep. Um, but he got deeply addicted to ketamine, uh, <laughs> you know, to the point where the stories go that, you know, he'd like go to a party and he was just out in his van shooting up ketamine and and just really getting lost in that space. I think he 
drowned in his hot tub once and his wife revived him. So, um, you know, talk about abuse, like, and I think eventually it, it probably did lead to his death. Um, but from what I've read and understand that was more for him about, uh, a rejection of, of this level of reality of existing in this plane and in favor of whatever the ketamine dimension was or is right. Yeah. He was more, um, attuned to and addicted to just escaping into that realm. Uh, and that it was less about ketamine as a substance being physically addictive. Yeah. It's like pot being emotionally addictive or mm-hmm. psychologically. And there's lots of things like that for sure. I mean, look, I, I've, I meet people who are, there's definitely a form of addiction happening just with medicine work with whether it's ayahuasca or even though you're like, how could someone be addicted to something so challenging? It's like, boy, do I see mm-hmm. it. You know, they just can't yeah, stop yeah. diving into that space yep. over and over and over again, and de- and deeper and deeper and deeper. Well, and uh, that brings up a, a sort of a broader question for me, which is a theme I've been working with, you know, as you said at the beginning that these, I mean, since April, I've been on this like arc of personal growth that's been um, honestly destabilizing in a lot of ways in the sense that it's just taken me so deeply into the intensity of my experience, my embodied experience, you know, my, my uncomfortable emotions, my physical pain, my emotional pain, um, in ways that, you know, somehow feel like, um, they're good for me. Um, if that makes sense, like this is actually a, a new kind of peak of growth for me in that I'm, I feel like I'm I'm coming to a space in my own work where I'm really focused on being here uh, in a very simple, grounded way that I'm not seeking to escape my experience. Um, and so, so the, you know, the kind of question that comes up for me is like, well, what are we really doing on this path? You know, whether it's the medicine path or the meditation path or the the spiritual healing or whatever you want to think about, like what what's the end game here? And I don't, I don't expect you to have an answer necessarily, but curious what, what your experience has been. Well, I think the end game is that the realization that there's no end game, Mm -hmm. you know, that is the mystery in itself. Yeah. It's, uh, it's an infinite unfolding process. When we get into the notion of a destination, that's why I think the term enlightenment is somewhat damaging because it is just a word that's trying to represent something to symbol and what it's representing is like God. It's ineffable. Right. And um, it's, you it's know, problematic. That, it's problematic. And um, I had an experience recently. I was in a five-day somatic meditation retreat. And at some point in that retreat, it just hit me. Just, the, you know, the words give up on enlightenment. Uh, give up on even even in the, the act of meditation, give up on trying to achieve any particular state whatsoever and fully embrace all that you're experiencing, even if that's just a bunch of random thoughts or pain in your body or nothing at all. Um, and it, it, it's this way in which like, I, I think the story goes that the Buddha, when he finally achieved enlightenment, um, it was when he gave up and yeah, he was yeah. just so exhausted. <laughs> I think he'd been fasting for 40 days and he just sat down beneath this tree and said, I'm, I'm done searching. I'm so tired of trying to achieve anything. And then it hit him. And, you know, it's like we can't go seeking that experience even on, like, oh, I'm going to give up on enlightenment so that I can get enlightened. Um, I, and I think there's still a flavor of that in me, to, to be honest, of that there's still some seeking vibe, some energy that wants to achieve something. 
and that the the growth for me in this moment is really releasing that and really like what does it mean just to be me right now and not at all attached to the idea of achieving some enlightened state or different state yeah that seeking is an aspect of the mind right and there's sort of like a, there's always a longing to return with God is one way to look at it mm-hmm. because we feel separate in incarnation and the game seems to be uh, the more you're here now in the words of Ramdas the more you are God you're with God it's all one thing as uh, Maharaj would always put up his finger and say subak all one all one subak all cool one. Subak, yeah. So he just kept saying, I mean, I was just trying to remind us, it's like there only is one thing. Mm-hmm. And so our mach- machination, machinations in our mind to see it otherwise only creates pain. This is something I felt in the ketamine journey I had. Mm. How um, so? Well, every time I w- would focus, and I felt this in ayahuasca 10 years ago when I had my first ayahuasca experience, exactly the same lesson, just a total different level of intensity. When I'd focus on my breath which meant I was dropping everything else. Mm-hmm. Whatever thought I was having, whatever desire, anything, I just go back, boom, in, out, and become hyper-present is when all the bliss and the lessons would yep. unfold and the deeper and deeper I would go, the more I'd float and the more it was like these huge feeling lessons. And then anytime I had thoughts about anything, which inevitably are going to be out the past or the, uh, the future or a question about this, uh, it's when things started to feel a little going off the rails or nausea even would come up yeah, yeah. in my body. And then I would just, instead of thinking about my way out of whatever I was thinking about, just just like meditation, let it go and come back to the breath. I would watch as within a few seconds, if not a minute, I would flow into a new blissful state of learning and yes. centered and enlightenment. And when I say enlightenment, I mean it's something that you are always in because you're it and sometimes you you pop your head out of it. So right. it's really like you're, you're falling back into what you are. It, it, you don't learn it. You're not given it. It already exists. Um, and I saw as the ketamine was wearing off, sort of going down through the densities back to this viewpoint on reality. Let's just call it three-dimensional reality. Mm-hmm. And I could watch as I was starting to come back and, and quite in a present way see it coming back into form. And a few times in the experience, it almost like quickly like zoom zoomed back into like here. Where all of a sudden, I was I'd be in this space where I was looking at like I remember one time I it looked like infinite stars, hmm. and there was like this horizon, and I was floating in it, and I was just like, oh my god, this is amazing. I was getting this lesson about sort of that oneness, and then all of a sudden, it zoomed quickly back to the blindfold on my eyes, and I could see the material of the blindfold, hmm. and that's all that was in front of me it was just like this banal blindfold and I was like oh well that's not too pleasant but as I, I see I'm just but I was seeing this stark difference yeah and instead of like oh I want to go back or I want this or I want that is like okay I let it go and go back to the breath and I was like I don't know if we're done or whatever and inevitably it went into this whole other space yeah um so- and the music was guiding that too which was so cool mm-hmm. and I just want to say to listeners that we were using a record that's coming out in uh, early winter that's going to be, it's called Spores, and it's a excerpts from the Music for Mushrooms album. So it's like an hour-long record 
that is just like shorter versions of some of the songs from Music for Mushrooms. And it worked fantastically well. Yeah, somehow perfectly timed for a ketamine session. I was like... Weirdly (laughs) perfectly timed, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Or maybe not, you know, but but so much (laughs) of what you're saying I can relate to. And and, um, it's interesting hearing you talk about, you know, all one and then this experience of duality in a way of like being in the cosmic center and then coming back and seeing the blindfold. And uh, what I find is there's often a, a moment in session when clients are coming back at at least you know the first few sessions or initially there's there's a lot of grief and sadness yeah. and, and longing and like oh don't make me come back here right, the heaviness <laughs> like, right <laughs> yeah like i want to stay in that space forever mm-hmm. and um i i suspect that that's where a lot of the real work actually is is in welcoming yourself back from wherever you were and realizing on some level, you know, deeper than, than thought that none of it is ever separate, that, that the eye shades and the infinite stars are, are ultimately one and the same. Um, Mm -hmm. but that there is a real, um, experience here of duality that we, we are living in a, a dimension where most of the time we feel separate, you know, in our bodies, we feel separate emotionally and mentally and disconnected and, and so it's like almost holding the the duality of non-duality, if that makes any sense, and and being with both. Um, you know, I know some of the imagery that you were talking about after the session was this like black and white, uh, almost like yin and yang type circle. Circle, yeah. Half black, half white as a summation of like what's going on here. Mm-hmm. And not even what's going on, but like our perception of it. Right. You know, it's that... We, we use terms like good and evil to try to just sum up what is um, a numinous feeling that can't be put into words that you, you feel in these spaces. And then like when we get back down to 3D reality, sometimes we do things like, well, there's good and there's evil. And it's sort of like the engine of life. But, you know, we can make it too anthropomorphic and sort of say like, well, there's a devil and there's God. It's just a way of sort of describing the grist for the mill. Mm-hmm. The fact that we're meant to be in this yin-yang wheel in our incarnation. And that is the point. And escaping it is uh, sort of like impossible. Yeah. <laughs> like that's the playing field you're on. It's not that that will go away. I think like how Ramdas speaks, it's about witnessing it. You're just it, He doesn't stop that process. He doesn't destroy his ego. He's just stepped back from it more of the time right. with love yeah, and loving the process. You really are. And that, that, you know, part of what I'm hearing in your description or, or, you know, my own interpretation of it is that there's, there's sort of this movement in the direction of relaxation, which is what you were describing mm-hmm. around letting go, letting go of thought, letting go of anything but breath, even letting go of breath eventually and just existing um, and to me, I mean, that seems like the way to navigate the ketamine space, just as an aside, that that this process of letting go is the one that really takes you where where the truth is, whatever that truth is. Um, and and then there's this, you know, in life, there's this movement in the direction of tension and that the more I, you know, I've just been deeply attuned to this whole idea, you know, somatic practices and meditations and feeling my body and that continually daily blown away and shocked by how, you know, the more I become aware of my body, how much tension I accumulate um, just through thinking, really, you know, just Mm. through the the constant 
machinations of the mind and ruminations and projections and and fears and worries and insecurities and and even just daydreaming but that that real simply if i'm in my mind i'm not in my body and my body goes into a state of freeze and then starts to accumulate experience and so one of the sort of like overarching lessons i've been taking from my own ketamine work and meditation work is that the more i can relax um the more i i start to actually arrive where i am and and maybe it's that simple is just relax well, you seem like a pretty relaxed dude in your demeanor. I mean, what practices are you bringing that help you to do that, to relax, to let go? Yeah, I mean, lately I've been tapping into, I don't know if you're familiar with Dharma Ocean and Reggie Ray, and um, it's a really strange time to be tuning into those practices because I'm, I'm deeply loving them and finding a lot of truth in them and honestly relief and just like, oh, so thankful that I found something practical. Um, and at the same time, you know, there's been an accuse of abuse of power and uh, a, an accusation, I'm sorry, of abuse of power um, against Raji and, you know, against this part of how he's holding the community. And so there's this uh, kind of going back to your good and evil. It's like, OK, we look at like Chogyam Trumpa or all these spiritual leaders who seem to have some deep wisdom and then showed up in the world in a way that just was harmful um, and negative. And so my own ability to, to hold the practices um, as they are and release them from this person of being good or evil or bad. Um, so that's a long preface to say that the practices themselves are really um, breath and body based, you know, so in that, in Reggie's work, um, there's like a 10 points practice where I just lay down for half an hour every morning and I start at my toes and I feel my toes um, deeply and try to relax them and work my way slowly all the way up to my head um, through, you know, 10 different points in my body. Um, there's, um, I think we did a, a brief version of that in your experience. And there's different breath techniques. There's yin breathing, just breathing deep into your own belly for a long period of time and focusing on that with your awareness. Um, there's threefold breath. There's there's earth and... and um, I'm, I'm at least on board with this idea. I can't say I've like experientially deeply accessed it, that you can, um, with enough trained awareness, drop your awareness into the earth and, and feel yourself as connected to the earth and not separate. And that that's an incredible relief and, and sense of support. So, um, it's the forms mostly, of breathing and meditation. What's that? kind of different forms of breathing and meditation, would you say? Yeah, kind of meditation that's just highly focused on the direct non-conceptual experience in the body and not at all really worried about the mental space, you know, that the thoughts are coming and going and they're not a problem, uh -huh. but I'm, I'm trying uh -huh. to relate to my body in a way without any mm -hmm. judgments or preconceptions about good or bad or stories or anything like that. Do you find that that's maybe the biggest impediment that people come in when they're they're coming in for therapy is uh, an inability to access their body mind, meaning the wisdom of their body or connection to it? Largely, yeah. I mean, the the you know the the way I frame my work is that I'm a trauma therapist, and and that the fundamental function of trauma is to create a disconnect between the mind and the body. And that that's a, mm. it's a safety mechanism, right? Like if you're being eaten alive by a, a lion, you don't want to feel that. So you're going to check out and leave your body. Uh, and if you've had a lifetime of experience of not feeling safe in your body, why would you want to be in your body? Um, 
so that and as a symptom of our culture and and technology and our fast paced lives that I I found coming back from that retreat of just five days of just laying on the ground feeling my body immediately when I started to re-engage with my phone and with technology and, and communication and, and just all this stimulus, um, I was starting to accumulate tension in my body right away. And that, you know, that would start to feel like depression or anxiety or things like that. And I would have to go back into my body and release it and, and get a clear mind state again. But that, um, you know, whether you're traumatized or whether you're just a, a human being living in this kind of hectic, crazy, fast paced world, it's, it's really easy and, and quite uh, a slippery slope to become disembodied. And, and so, yes, you know, it's a long way of saying the majority of my work is just helping people to feel what they're feeling in the moment they're feeling it. And that's it. But we, when people, let's say they come in to have therapeutic work and it's, uh, they're, they're depressed because like something major happened, like mm-hmm. their partner died. Okay, something like you know, big. So they're they probably they're meant to be quite sad and really right. going through it, right? And and they've really stumbled or they've they've really tripped up to now where they're maybe feeling pseudo suicidal ideation. They're just in the the bottom of it, yeah. And they're coming yeah. to you because they're like, I'm just I don't know how to go on. Yeah. Um. Do you find that there's a danger in something like ketamine where they might walk out of that office that day and yes, they might be like, wow. It's the best I've felt since this began. But where might that be short-circuiting the healing that needs to occur? Because that depression, in a sense, is triggered from something real that needs to have time, needs to have process, needs yeah. to have grief. And But it's a fine line because you, you don't want to, to snowball into a place where you can't even live. Yeah, and it's a really good question because I, I think, you know, what you're referring to is bypassing, right? That the idea that um, we can use anything, but especially substances to um, avoid and escape and numb from our experience of grief and sadness and contextually appropriate feelings. If you've been through something that devastating, uh, feeling sad is not a problem. It's appropriate. And so um, what I've found is is there is a, it's really in the relationship, right? So like if I'm a, whether you're using pot or ketamine or um, caffeine or whatever substance you're ingesting, most of us are taking something of some kind, um, even food that oh yeah if if we if we move towards that experience with the intention of uh shutting down and escaping and avoiding well we're going to create a lot of that blocked experience that's going to manifest this tension and then anxiety and depression um or if we hold it in such a way where we use this space intentionally to move towards the experience and go deeper into it um, using the added sense of safety that we get from an expanded state of consciousness to actually fully embody and and contact the emotion in a really courageous way. Uh, and and what I find, you know, like you had a the variety of ketamine session you got was very peaceful and relaxed and and blissful. Um, and sometimes it's not that, you know, sometimes people really do go directly towards the emotion and there's a uh-huh. full expression of it that maybe they couldn't access in their waking state of mind because they have, you know, built up 
mind, body, ego defenses that say, don't go there. It's not safe. It's not appropriate. It's not okay. Uh, that once that part of the mind shuts off, that then the emotion really comes and, and really what we're after is completion, you know, that feelings just want to be completed. And so all we have to do is make space for them to be lived and felt and completed. And that's where, um, just like anything, how you use it kind of dictates whether it serves you or not. Do you think that uh, ketamine is particularly suited for trauma or PTSD in the ways that they've been doing some research about MDMA with MAPS? Yes, and I, I kind of am more and more of the opinion that MDMA specifically for PTSD um, is kind of just the way to go. Um, I think ketamine has some utility there, but it's almost the difference between the way I've been thinking about it is MDMA is like zooming in and, and so getting really deeply embodied access to your experience, the experience, the memory of the experience, uh, whereas ketamine is like zooming out. And so you get space from the experience, which can but isn't be it, healing. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. with, with MDMA, isn't it like that's really only going to be the case if someone's guiding you into that experience and things just are less charged emotionally because of the MDMA. Whereas I felt with the ketamine, like there was something going on or it seems to be chemically, at least with depression, um, like the, the, the experience itself is healing. Whereas I would say with MDMA, it might not be healing unless there's someone there to guide you through what you need to do. You know, like on its own, it feels nice, but I don't know if that would, you'd, I don't think it would do much for PTSD, I'm thinking, unless it had that guidance. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, and that's why the model they have is MDMA assisted therapy, you know, that it's right. Right. The, the MDMA is not doing the work. You and the therapist team are doing the work. Uh, So, and that's, you know, that's where I am curious about. I I think you're right. You're onto something that the ketamine is a little bit more autonomous, um, but I will say, you know, when I do my own sessions, there's something different about having someone in the room. And, and sure. I, think, I think we even talked about this last time of just that the, the sort of, um, I don't want to say mandate, the opportunity to, to be in relationship and to trust and, and surrender and open and be vulnerable and be witnessed, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like playing music for one person versus no one is totally different, obviously, but even just one person is almost harder than a thousand. Yeah. It's, it's more vulnerable. And it's more of a direct relationship. Yeah. I mean, as you're speaking that I'm actually, you know, speaking of somatic hits, getting quite a lot of sensation and even emotion in my body, thinking about, um, the simple and sometimes terrifying edge of being witnessed in our messiness and our rawness. Um, it's a theme I've been yeah. really embracing lately in my life. And it's, some, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, this is what I want. You know, I want realness. I want authenticity. I want connection. I want vulnerability. And then getting it, I'm like, oh, shit, <laughs> this is, mm-hmm. um, this feels like um, dissolution. This feels like complete annihilation because the, if, if I'm really choosing to fully um, not hide any part of my experience and allow all the parts of me that I, I hold judgment against or that I think are messy or too much or not okay um, out in front of another person, um, so much trust 
and such an opportunity to heal. And that's, you know, the blessing I've been receiving in relationship lately is that I, I keep being met with like all these, you know, acceptance and love and, and it keeps taking me further into this edge of annihilation that feels big and exciting and just totally crazy at the same time. It's crazy that we all as humans experience the same thing, but we pretend like it's just us that be like, most people, if they're old enough, have probably had a time when they basically had like a mental breakdown of emotion or got so angry they wanted to, they threw something or are sobbing. You know, there's probably been a moment of deep despair. You just feel like a child just wet with tears and snot and, or sexual, you know, heights and lows. We've, most of us share these things, mm-hmm. but we, we hide the fact that we all know what that's like, yeah. as if like you're different and maybe I, no one's really, that's so embarrassing. It's like, well, yeah, it's, it's embarrassing because it's vulnerable, but we've all probably been there. Oh yeah. You know, there's all these different colors of experience. And what a gift we can give one another when we allow the other person to just be exactly as they are. Um, and, and certainly that's something I'm, I'm cultivating more in my life. And, um, like I said, it's a challenge, but it's, it's one that right now is kind of hinging around, uh, freedom from expectation, you know, so releasing attachment to outcome. And what does it mean for two people to just moment by moment, choose that connection, um, and, and choose to stay connected through all of the vulnerability and the messiness and, um, and keep letting deeper and deeper parts of, of my own experience out in that container. Uh, it's, well, it's hard not to be attached, right? You know, it's hard not to, it's human nature to want security or, uh, expectations are a form of safety, you know, and that's what the deepening of a long-term relationship gives you is a sense of like, well, I know what to expect. You know, this person has proven, uh, I've seen the different sides of them, you know, the more time that goes on. And after a while you're like, okay, there's a through line here. And that's what I can, I can, you know, time has given me that, whether I look at it as an expectation or not. Um, but it's natural for the body or the, the mind to try to protect you. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe something you could short circuit and say like, well, I'm going to let that go and just come back to presence. Um, and you may be hurt. I mean, inevitably we all do get hurt in different ways at different times. I suppose it's just how much you're willing to be vulnerable. You know, how much strength and security do you feel in your sense of self that you can bring that kind of dropping of expectations and assumptions? It takes a real sense of strong character and will and safety mm-hmm. in yourself. Yeah, and it's, you know, these terms that uh, can sound so cliche or whatever, but that in, in this work, we were talking a little bit, you know, bringing it back to the ketamine of around symbols and archetypes and that, um, what you're describing, that courage, that bravery, um, calling on these archetypes that have existed in human consciousness for so long of the warrior, you know, that this, that love or healing or spirit, that this is all the path of the warrior. Um, and that's something that it, it's so fun in, in working with my clients and in my own life to see someone c- connect with that. And, and on that primal level where like, you know, maybe they have this like nine to five job and their life is, is, is feeling a bit just, um, predictable and routine. And then to suddenly invite them to step into becoming a warrior, um, in a, in a way that, you know, they're courageously wielding their own love and vulnerability 
and bringing that out into the world uh, in the service of their partner or their job or whoever. Uh, so there's there's a lot of fun I've been having of of just um, embodying archetypes and and calling on archetypes and and letting that be a um, a space for the unconscious mind to play. There's a lot of different flavors for us to work with, you know, sort of whatever works. But bringing in any sense of courage or the idea of the warrior energy in a lot of ways is done through letting go, right? It's uh, It does take a form of bravery to not try to control something. Absolutely. Or to let it just unfold. Uh, you know, and that's what I'm seeing inside uh, that psychedelic experience. Um and the ketamine, it was certainly easier to do because it was, I didn't have a lot of anxiety in that space. Certainly at times, some, mm-hmm. you know, I was bringing up memories of old trips where things maybe did go really sideways Yeah, and you're sort of thinking, is it going to go there? And then I would just have to let go of that thought. And there's a trust and just like, I'm not even going to try Cause that's where the, the trauma lies. And it's me being like, okay, now I'm going to try and control it. So it doesn't. Well, and what you're describing, I think is, is, you know, Radha had brought this up in our discussion after the session. Um, that the the warrior training or discipline there really is this combination of focused attention and relaxation and letting go that there you know if we can't be all letting go and just get lost in the space and let our experience take us nor can we be all focused but that when you have as as you probably have in order to have navigated that space as you did when you've consciously cultivated a practice of uh, focusing your attention in an open and relaxed way that you can actually drop deeper and deeper and deeper uh, through a psychedelic experience or just in a daily life experience. And that I think is, um, you know, kind of one of the fundamental skills that's required to navigate this space is actually um, a daily practice of, of focusing your attention in that open and relaxed way. Yeah, it is a form of concentration. I mean, there's there is definitely an effort of kind of keeping the the keel in a certain direction, um, and that would be that muscle of concentration. And I think the point of all of this is is how it it's showing you in an amplified way what we experience all the time. It's not a separate space. It's just it's just an exaggerated space of three D consciousness, and I- and that's that's a really Great lesson. I mean, I think I kind of think that's what it's there to show you. It's sort of like it's like in hyper color in a sense. It's showing you things that are part of us, part of life. Yeah, yeah. Mind amplifier, uh, soul amplifier, however you want to think about it. I uh, yeah. I keep being struck by the image of that you were describing of falling back, um, kind of like back and down. Yeah, I mentioned to you that day is like I, I had a sensation in myself. My entire body was sort of like tilting back and flipping almost upside down, and, and it, was, it was. I've had that experience while meditating uh, sometimes. Right, and well, and the, I, I, it's pleasurable. Yeah, but it's sort of like it's it's a it's a very slow motion movement. And uh, I mean, the reason I bring it up is I I tend to have that from what I can tell that exact experience on ketamine and sometimes in meditation, and I I I don't have any answers here, but I I'm in terms of like all of the things we've been talking about and, and what it means to let go and drop in, I, I'm just kind of curious about, you know, why back and down and, and in <laughs> a lot of like, in some traditions I've, I've heard that, you know, our, our masculine consciousness lives behind us. And so, you know, how much of our attention is actually 
through our day in front of us. You know, that's where our eyes are. That's where our breath is. It's where our sensing organs are. Um, but then we're missing 50% of our experience, which is just this like void behind us, this space. And that as a way of playing with awareness and attention to start to bring awareness to the space behind us and further and further back into stillness, um, I don't even really have anywhere in particular I'm going with this train of thought, but it just struck me that, you know, we both shared that experience of, of falling back and down. And it, yeah, it's, it's weirdly pleasurable. Uh, I, I had a sense of like, well, where would this go? And I was want, you know, I kept kind of wanting it to go or by letting go to into almost like out of body states or, you know, how far into the oneness can I go? So I was sort of just allowing it to flow where it wanted to flow. And that's where it was taking me physically, which is cool because it feels like there's less and less of density of your body and you're sort of getting more into these etheric feelings and realms because your body is just kind of like becoming very light. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't feel that heaviness. And that's so much of um, what seems to arise in the medicine space and ceremony space is metaphor for life. And everything I'm hearing you describe are at least aspirations for me of how to live my life, which is to let go and float downstream and trust the process. And, um, you know, that the more I actually embrace that way of being, of, of dropping into the oneness, dropping into the flow, not trying to control my experience of life, but just allow it, um, the more richness I'm finding and, and of, you know, that primal terror of, <laughs> of not being in control. Um, and accepting mm-hmm. that and and still trusting that somehow, you know, whatever form of belief or faith um, you ascribe to, that that there is um, a sense of being taken care of and provided for. And I keep being blown away by that, you know, the more I lean into it. And that is the fundamental uh, container, I would say. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll call it love, being held, uh, taken care of. Uh, like it's impossible to escape that. And then inside that is sort of that dualistic mindset, right? you know, good and evil. But And I think it's a bit of a radical act these days to hold that frequency, that intention. Um, Because so much of what I feel in the culture is a lot of grasping and clinging and fear, you know, that like there's nothing trustable about what's happening in the world right now, right? That um, it's, it's doom and gloom and terror and it's all going to hell. And, um, you know, that somehow all these 13.8 billion years of evolution are, are going to end in some cataclysmic collapse in our lifetime because we've screwed everything up so badly. You know, like that seems to be the vibration I'm getting from the culture at large. Um, and, and then to practice in my own, uh, way of being like, well, what, a, you know, not in an ignorant or, or blind way. Like there's a lot of, of change that's required and action that's required, but what if we, we collectively held that intention that we, you know, things are unfolding as they need to. And there's a, there's an ability to trust even this experience of collapse. Um, it's, it's not easy for sure. And I struggle with it, but I, I, I keep wanting to come back to that because it just seems better than the alternative. Yeah, and there is a truth in it, and that is the danger of of spiritualism or the New Age movement. Is that the criticism has always been that it leads to apathy mm-hmm. in an action, and it doesn't absolve us from making choices and activism. I, 
honestly, I find that a lot of people, like the work you're doing and this kind of work we're talking about is about doing things from the inside and out. And oftentimes when I feel more connected to all that is, when that's obviously going to include other people on the planet, I have more empathy and sympathy and I, I want to help other people more and I feel more strength to do that. It's the feeling of separateness that creates a feeling of needing to protect yourself you know, this is mine, that's yours, this is where the line is, this is what the law is for. Um, usually, you know, it is very important for us to still remember that, like, action in the world and activism is valuable and important, um, even if there is some kind of grand design. We're still inside, again, that circle that's half black, half white, sort of half full, half empty, uh, the yin, the yang, where we have our choices, and that's half of that that's equally important. And then we have this form of destiny. And they are meant to be um, a paradox. Mm -hmm. Because it's not there for us. To, if we knew exactly how this whole equation worked, well, then the jig would be up in a way. There would be no point to be here and have a spiritual life because you'd know the answer. <laughs> right. And that, you know, I love... I'm a huge fan of paradox. It's one of my favorite places to arrive to because to me, it usually speaks to having hit on a deeper universal truth that if we're actually, you know, if we found something that is a contradiction, you know, where it's like, okay, uh, as you said, like destiny and choice or, or predestination and free will, um, are those compatible? And I think so, but it is a paradox. And, um, living in that paradox just seems to be the human burden or the human blessing um, that we we get the opportunity to to feel all of it and to you know really um, take responsibility for our experience and at the same time remember that we're connected and so I loved what you were saying about working from the inside out uh, that if you really understand that you belong to everything else, the earth, the cosmos, that, that you're not separate, um, then in some way you releasing or me releasing my anxiety, fear, tension, blame, resentment, trauma, whatever, uh, is a contribution to the whole and a worthy one. And, and that imagine if we all collectively started to do that, um, how things might begin to shift and how you know, the organism as a whole uh, would would feel the impact of that. Well, and I hope that uh, these these forms of therapy, there's and there's myriad of them, but the ketamine therapy, for instance, that it can come to people who maybe wouldn't be able to do this. You know, inner city people who don't have the means. Um, I'd love for us. I wish we could be a society that prioritized stuff like that. And maybe there's a way it'll happen. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like activist ketamine therapy in a way. Yeah. Well, it raises a lot of good questions. And, and the reality of the field right now is that psychedelic therapy is very expensive. Um, yeah, that's, that, is a, that is a problem of design. And that is a valid criticism. Yep. You know, I'd like to be reaching people who don't have a means too. And it's, um, uh, man, it's, it's, I feel like this is delicate territory because it's not my place to um, you know, judge another's experience or, or say what's right and wrong or what's needed. But I, I do wonder, you know, like I used to work in, um, I spent about a decade working in low income schools, just, you know, the hardest hit trauma and poverty and stories that just break your heart every day. And there was sort of a, a realization I came to that, you know, I'd been given all these tools as a therapist and a counselor. 
And actually, it would have been unethical for me to start to apply those tools with these kids because the reality was they needed those defense mechanisms um, because they weren't actually safe. You know, so so to open their hearts or open them to the depth of their pain or or help them start to reprocess the trauma is like that would cripple them because th- what they're doing is actually really smart, which is to to dissociate and shut off and check out from their experience. So it, um, you know, it's, it's even a privilege, I guess, to be able to do this work um, coming from a foundation of safety where I know I have a place to live and food to eat and that I'm physically oh, yeah. safe at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, I, psychedelic exploration at least these days definitely seems to be a, it's a leisure activity so to speak, right. because you probably aren't even going there if you're just worried about getting food on the table uh and your you know the paycheck making rent each month i mean it's just it's sort of something that you would do in free time is like these spiritual pursuits i just didn't want it to become another vestige of the the priest class where it's like the white priest males sort of say well we'll get the information and distill it down to you right uh, we we need to say like everyone can have this experience whatever fits them perfectly yeah and i don't have the answer to say like well we just we just give it to this person or that person, but there, there is a barrier, as you said, with barrier it being, it's, a, it's pricey. Yeah. And yeah. so we need to figure out some ways around that too. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I'm also curious about the potential for using psychedelic healing as a modality for social activism. Um, it, it feels kind of appropriate. One of the, one of the teachers along my path was this man, Don Howard, who recently passed. Um, down at Spirit Quest in Peru. And what struck me as incredible about the way he held the medicine and the work, at least as I experienced it, was that, you know, he would guide these journeys where he, you know, we'd be on San Pedro, which is this huge heart-opening medicine, and then moving through the rainforest, you know, on boats and, and by foot and interacting with these native tribes. And you couldn't help in that state, but feel connected to the entire Amazon and want to protect it and help it. Um, It was just the nature of the experience that you felt at one with it and you felt the suffering of the tribes and and the trees and and wanted to help. Um, And so part of me wonders if this renaissance isn't a way of of opening people's hearts towards action and, and that if we actually you know, created healing centers and institutes that were oriented towards not just the individual healing, but the, um, the, the collective healing and, and the sort of boots on the ground, getting back into the community and saying like, all right, you had this huge heart opening and sudden awakening and, and you've reached this new level of consciousness. Well, now what do you want to do with it? You know, what is it that you're going to change in your family or in your community, in your life, whether that's literally just tending the garden in your backyard or starting some, you know, nonprofit to help in poverty. Um, but following your own heart and your own passion and, and, um, all that's a way of saying, you know, just a lot of gratitude for this man who came into my life and showed me that possibility, um, that his form of activism was really to just focus on the individual heart, uh, and one person at a time, connect people with the planet and the earth and, and start to orient them towards service. So, um, I'm probably is that. not another way, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it is always through the heart. It always one heart at a time, one soul at a time. And that's, there isn't another way. Yeah. 
I don't think so. And uh, it gives me hope, though. You know, like I, I think if if enough um, enough critical mass is is called to do that work and and to live out their unique heart's purpose, then I don't doubt that uh, we can turn this ship around. Well, let's leave it on that positive note. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> um, you're still at your same place, right? Is it CodyWigs.com or something? Cody I don't Wigs. remember. Com, yeah. That's, yeah. That's the website. Yeah. Cool. Well, keep doing what you're doing, man. Um, it's good to catch up. And thank you again for such uh, wonderful guidance when we were in Denver. And I look forward to more. Same. Thanks, Cody, for coming back. It's always good to uh, get folks back on the podcast, and he's a good dude. It's great to be able to see him. I'm just glad we could uh, deepen our connection and friendship and just the exploration of the mystery. This song that you're hearing in the background is called Accord, and it's from Music for Mushrooms, a soundtrack for the psychedelic practitioner. And this song, for example, there is a shorter edited version that is on this upcoming Spores record that's currently slated for January 31st, 2020. And that will be on vinyl as well. So the vinyl is being produced right now. It's super beautiful. So it's kind of a way to get the music for Mushrooms on vinyl and just have a shorter version for those who want a one-hour version versus five. Hey, if you like this podcast or if you're listening... It's a free podcast, and one of the ways you can help us with this podcast not only is to share it with your friends, social media, email it to people, um, is to give it a review. And you can do that, particularly on iTunes, on I- Apple Podcasts. Uh, you scroll down, hit five stars, even better, give it a written review. I do read those. We have one here from, let's see, <laughs> Jimbo Jones, the Galactigator, the Galactivator. Of course you are, Jimbo Jones. Jimbo Jones says it's fulfilling and relaxing. You've such a chill personality with enough sharpness to keep interest and enough grace and softness to keep it relaxing. I absolutely love listening to this podcast. Well, thanks, man. Um, I'm not always chill, but I certainly cultivate chill. And uh, I like that. Sharpness with enough softness. Right? That's what we're all going for. Sharp when we need to be sharp. Soft when we need to be sharp. Um, but thank you for writing that one. Oh, we got another one here from Artemis of the Nexus. These are rad names. I love it. Artemis says, Thank you. I recently found your podcast, which led me to your music. I'm a big fan of Ram Dass's lecture. So finding your collaborative album with him was an awesome treat. Love the podcast and looking forward to exploring a lot more of your work. Well, me too, Artemis. There's different things there to explore, whether it's a retreat or a live event or this um, thank you so all of you who have been rating it and and doing these uh, reviews you know you can do it more than once and we are two away at this point from a hundred ratings which is an awesome milestone but it also it helps me when I'm reaching out to potential guests them seeing some legitimacy and saying yes and I have been reaching out to some pretty interesting people and I've actually been surprised <laughs> by some of the yeses so uh, there's some it takes a bit more work you know we have to do some pre-interviews and discussions and reading their books which is awesome this that's why i love doing this is to deepen my knowledge and deepen my connections to the outer world and to you guys Um, but there's some cool stuff coming in the pike and i am working hard in the background and i'm always open to suggestions too you can always reach out at info at eastforest.org to say hi or or whatever hey if you're on paypal 
that's the PayPal address. If you just want to slip us a cool million, just make sure you do it with friends and family because no one wants to pay like um, a $50,000 fee. Just a, that's a pro tip there for you uh, billionaires on PayPal. Okay. You guys keep walking your walk. Uh, I will keep walking mine. See you who are at Sand, who are at the Sand Conference. Uh, but don't take any shit. And if you do, do it with grace, folks. Please, for God's sake, do it with grace.